You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Retail Perch. Uh, this is uh, Shekhar Raman and Gary Hawkins back again, and we have more amazing guests for you this time. And this time we're going to be talking about, I think, a topic that's pretty hot in the grocery retail industry that's all about the uh, weekly ad and the promotion cycle and all that good stuff. And we have a great guest here. But before we do that, Gary, we, we've both been through some whirlwind a uh, couple of weeks here, last couple of yeah. weeks. Yes. Turned out okay for you? It's been, let's see, you were at uh, NRF in New York, right? And then we were both at the uh, FMI uh, Midwinter Conference uh, right. about a week, 10 days ago, and now we're back at it. Yeah, and I think uh, we had several people who were challenged getting back home on time because of flights and storms and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was a great event. I thought, you know, Marco Island was fantastic uh, for yeah. those of you who were there and uh, listening in. Uh, yeah. It's terrific. The, the, the weather could have been a Weather could have been a bit uh, better than it was, but yeah, yeah. But listen, I was sitting in white sand, and my wife was sitting in white snow. So I don't know. <laughs> there you go. I said it was white. That's the common thing. But you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, listen. It was it was terrific. I think I spoke to a lot of industry people. I think the general got a good sense of where the industry is headed. There's a lot of yes. focus around technology, innovation, AI, data management. I think it's fantastic. So I think today's guest is, you know, it's a terrific one to come off of that those events because uh, Brian Cohen here, CEO of Pure Red, uh, lives in that world. And uh, and he's done lots of really cool, amazing things, including being the CEO of Astronet, which is a space science as a service <laughs> platform, which I, th wow. I thought was absolutely fascinating. So we have a guest who is out of the world. So... With that, uh, I want to introduce Brian. So, Brian, just tell us a little bit about your your background. You know how you found yourself in this industry, and uh, and then we can. Uh, well, gentlemen, it's good to be here. Uh, I'm also coming off of fun travel the last couple of weeks with plenty of canceled flights, so uh, I understand that experience. Uh, I'm on the board of of, of Astronetics, and that's uh, it's a, a fascinating uh, group. We'll, we'll we'll cover that one quick, and then we'll. We'll move back into the marketing and advertising world that we're living in. But um, that is a group that was founded by some former NASA employees, scientists, uh, rocket scientists. So uh, I get to be the business guy. I get to be the guy who talks to them about pricing strategy and distribution while they talk about the cosmos. And uh, the, the balance works really, really well. So it's a tremendous amount of fun. And it's a really impressive group of people. Um, I like to say I've never had to explain myself twice on a board call because they get it and they get it fast. Um, really, really smart people, but really great and uh, genuine people as well. Quick, a quick hit on me. You know, I've been in this industry now for uh, way a little bit too long. I think at this point, I had hair when I started. Uh, and it was a nineteen in front of the year, and uh, you know, I've, I've I've always loved marketing. I've always loved advertising, and I've always loved innovation. And I think that's what brought me into this space, and that's what's um, driven most of my career. Uh, you know, I spent the better part of a decade at Epsilon when we were uh, determining how to take the data that was um, warehoused within Epsilon and really drive it through the marketing services realm. Um, so sort of uh, driving what has been the foundation for modern day AI and machine learning before we knew to call it that. So that was a lot of fun. 
Um, and we did some great work. I was part of a, a division there um, called Catapult Marketing, and we had a, a bit of a, a rocket ship ride for my tenure while we were there. Uh, and then I was also part of the leadership team at Epsilon, driving some of our innovation practices and driving some of our corporate strategy. Moved into the, what I call it, pure play private equity backed space about five years ago. Uh, took a restructuring assignment and turned a company around uh, and sold it uh, right before and through the pandemic. So that was uh, an education uh, in, in every moment and every, and every day. And I uh, took over here at Pure Red two years ago as an advisor to the organization and then as CEO full-time about a year and a half ago. And the reason I came here is I always described this company as the smartest and most innovative company that not enough people knew about. So, uh, you know, it was, there wasn't a lot of heavy lifting to do on, on the operational side because some of the smartest and most innovative people I've ever worked with. And my job is just to you know, prop them up and get out of their way. That's cool. That's terrific. That's yeah. I would love to talk about more about pure aid. Uh, so where, where are you seeing, I know it's, you know, last year and a half, we've seen a lot of, uh, exciting announcements about AI. And I think certainly the world has woken up to the fact that this is a real thing, right? This can affect yeah. us. So before we get into the world of Pure Red, what's your take on, you know, how uh, AI in all its forms affects marketing and advertising? Jeez, it affects it in a variety of different processes. And I, I think about sort of a broad stroke ideation on the big idea creative side. Uh, all of our creative leaders now have chat GPT built into their processes and they're thinking about it from an automation perspective on the content creation side. Uh, it's been an inspiration to creative leadership who's been willing to embrace it, right? There's sort of two sides. There's always the, it's not gonna take over from the uniqueness of me. And I think that's true, but there is a balance in between. So on the creative side, um, we've really seen it be a spark to new ideas, maybe new ways of thinking and um, different pathways that they wouldn't have thought of, whether it be from an insights perspective or from an actual creative ideation perspective. On the content creation side, we've seen speed to delivery go way up. Um, we've seen efficiency in that delivery go way up as a result of, of AI. This is both inside Pure Ed and just anecdotally what I'm hearing out in, in the industry um, and accuracy. You know, for he, for us, we traffic in a tremendous amount of content through this company every day. Uh, on average, 42 terabytes of data traffic through this company every day. So being able to use AI and machine learning to take what used to be a, a very manual process, automate it, shrink it down from, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks into a shorter time period and increase the accuracy uh, has been a, a huge boon for us. And then obviously on, a, on the technology side of our business and through the industry, um, the delivery, the analytics, the centralization, and the speed of, of which content can get not only created, but delivered has gone through the roof. And we're em employing that in our PR1 product quite a bit, uh, as you'd imagine. Right. Have, awesome. you, have you seen much or experienced much you know, pushback from different people across the organization that think that, you know, uh, AI is going to take over their jobs or replace them or that type thing or, yes. okay. Of course, you know, there's two schools, right? There's always the, 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 uh, the folks that have been doing a thing a certain way for a certain long period of time. Yeah. And 
the moment something comes in, we saw this it was QR codes or whatever. There was always something that was like, well, that's going to change the way we do things. And there's two groups, right? There's the group that says, you can't do it the way we do it because this is the way we do it. And they get a little resistant. Then there's the group that gets excited, like the creative ideators I was talking to earlier that say, ooh, here's a new toy. I want to be at the forefront of that. And most of the innovation that we're doing on the operational level as it relates to AI and machine learning uh, hasn't been driven corporate top down. It's been driven the other way around by mm. those thought leaders, those innovators who are excited awesome. about uh, what could be. Um, yeah. And a lot of those folks, as you would imagine, are the ones that are the hungriest. Mm. Right? They know it's coming. It's not a secret that it's coming. Yeah. So they're either going to get ahead of it or get left behind. Um, right. So they're excited to get ahead of it. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so coming back to marketing and advertising. So I know we've, you know, one of the topics that you guys, you're very excited about is the whole omni-channel experience. So where, where do you see this uh, in this post-COVID world? You know, how, you know, people, I guess, you know, 20 to 22 suddenly became aware <laughs> of e-commerce and they suddenly started shopping <laughs> online. And, and now you have a world where people are going back to stores. And right. so people are wondering, okay, so what's the presence and the role of e-commerce in our world today? It's, it seems like it's, it becomes a, it's an, an, another option for me to shop the store, not like a sole means of shopping the store. So, right. so I guess there's a need for a more unified experience where the choice is left to the consumer, right? In terms of how they- That's right. That's exactly the it. Store. So, so how do you guys, where do you see that? How important is it for a retailer to kind of develop that kind of omni-channel experience? Oh, I think it's critically important for retailers. Yeah, I think what- so much of what retail used to be is is dictating behavior and then trying to drive against that behavior. Meaning we know you're going to shop once a week. We're going to give you a physical circular and that's going to be the trigger point, if you will. Uh, we're going to give it to you on a Sunday because that's when everybody does their, their shopping and we're going to drive you into that. Now, it, because of e-commerce, because of pickup, uh, because of the role e-commerce as a platform plays in the physical retail experience, it's become less about threading this linear path and more about making sure that you're recognizing consumer behavior, observing and listening to consumer behavior, and have yourself present within somebody's unique path, for lack of a better term. Um, so for retailers to succeed, it is understanding their consumer and making sure they're in front of them, whatever those mechanisms are. So when e-commerce first came into, into being, say, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but you're talking 15, 16 years ago now. A lot of times it was the first stop somebody would make before they came into store. It was a research mechanism and they wouldn't buy because they didn't trust. And that obviously changed drastically with the pandemic where it became survival in many people's minds. They use e-commerce for, for those areas. Now that they've gone back to store, they're still using those tools. And those tools are for information gathering, for list building, for price comparison, um, so it's a little bit of a return, just not a full-on return to what it used to be. Uh, I don't want to get data wrong um, out in the world, but I think Amazon used to claim that um, for every 12 people that came to their site, one would actually transact, the rest would be using them for research. Again, that was 2000, whatever it was, 12, 13. At that point, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the data today is somewhat close to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the 11 yeah, use research. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. For sure. 
you know, and in fact, I saw another interesting statistic that I think about 20 years ago, most people used to go to Google to search for products there. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I think 55% of shoppers start their product search at Amazon. Yeah, that wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah, and it, it is crazy. Yeah. yeah. And they're doing, they're using these tools at shelf, right? You're seeing a lot of decisions being made where e-commerce may not be the driver of the purchase, but sometimes it is uh, a side cart, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. And you see it. I mean, you just use the eyeball test. You go grocery shopping and you see people with their phones out while they're putting their, you know, their, their thing, their items in a basket. And you move into other categories, specifically technology or bigger purchase items. They're doing research in the moment, in the point of purchase and saying, I can get it cheaper on Amazon. I'm just going to go buy it here. Yeah. Right. So the journey starts in store and then leads into e-commerce rather than the other way around. Yeah. Or, or sadly doing their research on their phone in the store because they can get more, better, accurate data than the salesperson that's talking to them. Right, which yeah. is probably lead us down a whole different customer experience conversation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 You're spot on. Yeah. So, 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 where does Pure Red kind of play in this space of omnichannel experience? You know, what is it that you guys are doing? Sure. Uh, quick commercial on who we are. We, we have you know, sort of three tentacles to our business that are all wrapped around enhancing customer experience. We have uh, an above the line advertising and creative uh, component where we will do everything from broadcast to digital delivery and media delivery through social. Uh, we've got a content creation uh, side of our house where everything from uh, photography, animation, motion, CGI, and we can develop a, a content uh massive amounts of content at scale. We have four of our own photography studios as well. Um, and then we're in the, the, uh, the technology business where we've got a, a piece of technology called PR1, which acts as the bedrock of promotional pricing and personalization for some of the largest retailers in, in the country. Uh, I won't name them here just to maintain some privacy, but uh, you know them and you've shopped at them. Um, the reason the software exists within the service-based ecosystem that we have is so much of that content we're able to organize, tag, warehouse, and then distribute throughout a retailer's ecosystem, either with PR1 being the di distribution mechanism or by through basic API handshakes, working within an existing tech stack and ecosystem. So that way, when you talk about omni-channel personalization, it's truly personalized from a content perspective, not just from a PII and data pers uh, personalized data perspective. Um, so that's the crux of who we are. It's a, a three sort of slightly different parts of the ecosystem, but you know they're there by design, and it's it's served us well because we're able to oscillate between departments, whether we're knee deep in a conversation with the CMO or knee deep in a conversation with the CTO, with merchandising being in there as well, we have that opportunity to understand each of those ecosystems because we fuel all of them. Hmm. So, and so many of the decisions that are happening right now, I'm sure you're experiencing it, Shaker, with, with all the conversations that you have, but um, gone are the days of having one buyer inside a, 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 a client, specifically at a retailer, uh, they're working together more than they ever have before. So the lines get blurred 
but they're not always coming together as strongly as they'd like because sometimes they've got some differing um, challenges. So right. we get to be that connective glue. Uh, I like to joke, I don't know if we intended to do that or if we far stumped our way into doing that, but we definitely sit there right now and uh, we're, and we've been seeing a boon in the business as a result. Right. Right. So on the promotional side, where, where do you see, you know, I think people have been predicting the, the ultimate demise of the weekly flyer. And I know you guys play in that space pretty strong. Less and less, but yeah. Less and less, but not so much in the printed version, but maybe more on the digital side of things. You know, <clears> how right. do you make promotions appear, you know, in that omni-channel experience, right? Where do you where do you see that going? You see more retailers investing more and more dollars, shifting it into digital and moving away oh, from yeah. the calendar-based print circular? Uh, count, so the physical calendar-based circular, 100%. The concept of it, no. It is still the data that comes off of that. The pricing, the promotion, the product, the image. Yeah. That's still, for all the work that a retailer does, it's still the number one driver of traffic every week. Right? So that is, you think about the way, they, again, looking through the lens of a consumer or a shopper, uh, whenever their trigger point is, I go shopping every Thursday, they're doing some level of trip planning, list building, some cases price comparison, in some places price comparison, um, against other retailers. So that data is driving choice. It's driving basket. And a lot of times it's driving you know, dinner for the week or whatever. So it's driving volume of trips. So we still are the drivers, the developers, and the owners of all of that data. We've stripped it out of a physical circular. And we've now made it, we've democratized it a little bit across the, the omnichannel ecosystem. It'll still show up on a retailer's website as a digital weekly ad in some cases. Yeah. Um, more shoppable than a print ad ever was before. Right. You can shop it in real time. Um, but we're able to now hit the consumer and the shopper more organically and naturally in their, in their natural habitat, if you will, rather than forcing them to pick up that print circular each week or opening up an app that they had, a, had to get it in before. Um, so I still think that, you know, going forward, Promotions, pricing in particular, are going to continue to be the number one driver of traffic. The experience and the, the way it gets ingested is going to be a lot different. And it's already transitioning. Yeah, so so I agree. I, I think it will continue to be the, the big driver. But that's also, it's so driven from the way this industry has gone to market, right? The, the brand manufacturers, vendors, you know, um, having their promotion cycle of products, feeding that right. to the retailer who in turn you know passes some portion of that along to uh to their shoppers yes you do um you know i i think that we're beginning to see you know a few retailers being willing to think differently and take a more customer first view of that promotion activity right mm -hmm. you know instead of Gee, you know, Kraft or Coke or Clorox has got these things on deal. They got to be on the front page. Shifting their view to the shoppers saying, you know, what does Mary want? What does Susan want or Tom or that type of thing? And that changes everything. Well, I tell you, to the, the way it shifted our business, because I think you're spot on, Gary. I think you're seeing what I call um, personalized and behavioral 
triggers shifting a little bit more than pre-programmed to your point suppliers saying i've got a season and let's go make sure we win that season we're definitely see, seeing that start to, to to bleed into a lot of what we're doing where uh things like just pricing product price promotion isn't all that's sitting in that content engine we're getting a lot more lifestyle content and a lot of times we're using lifestyle content and what i'd call retailer driven thematics whether we're creating them or they're created elsewhere uh, as the driver for which we can start building some of that around. So to your, use your example, it's great that Pepsi wants to win 4th of July. Um, and that may be the case. We may ultimately land there, but we may think we've got a better opportunity based on our own data to do something else. And we, we pull right. something else into that, uh, that equation. And a lot of times it's more of a, um, we'll call it an event-based program rather than an individual product or a pricing promotion. Yeah. Yeah. So the other concept that I think is super interesting for me, uh, Brian, is, you know, you talk about you know, everybody wants to future proof, right? Like, you know, you don't know sure. what's coming down the road. You know, you, right. there's innovation <laughs> happening. There's people sitting, you know, people sitting in their basements cooking up the next big idea. And, and you're, you know, not, if you're a retailer, technology is not your core business. Your nope. core business is moving product off your shelves, right? And keeping your customers happy. Right. And I guess there are retailers who worry about, you know, what's going to come around that might disrupt my whole thing and how do I future proof? So I think a lot of people want to buy some kind of insurance against potential, you know, technology innovations that come across. You know, when you think about that, you know, what's your conversation with retailers? I mean, they ask you, how do I future proof my business? <laughs> um, it's, it's such a fascinating question. Uh, I don't, uh, agility is usually what I drive them to. Uh, and this is personal. I don't know if this is the right answer because right? everybody's got their own, but we talk about agility and the problem, problem with deep investments into tech stacks is it's actually something that we've thought about very consciously as we've built our own softwares, deep investment into tech stacks means it's very hard to move. Right. So, and that I feel like has been the biggest challenge that I've seen. I've personally seen retailers have is. I've already invested in this, therefore it has to work. Whereas to your point, three months from now, six months from now, something could drastically change. Um, the ability to, and that's really um, more so in, in retailers who, to your point, deviate from what they're really good at and try to build internally versus leveraging third parties, right? And you definitely see that. I, I, and I will forever appreciate a chief product officer to retailer saying, well, we can build that ourselves because their chief product officer, that their whole career has been building. That's what they do. Um, getting out of that comfort zone and recognizing that the ability to think of it like pipes, you got to unplug and plug new pipes. There's always a better data set. There's always a better technology. Having that agility is I think the key to being able to survive and whatever's coming next, because I mean, you think about the last four years of our lives in particular, nobody could have planned for any of it, right? right. Starting with COVID and then supply chain and then, um, you know, massive hiring, then massive layoffs. And, you know, there's a, you know, all these different things that are coming, you know, there's a recession coming, there isn't one coming, or maybe it's coming. Uncertainty seems to be the only certainty that we can right. plan against. Right. Right. So yeah. having the ability to uh, be a little more nimble, to pivot when when is needed 
yeah. uh, I think is going to be this, the, the difference between the winners and the losers in, in the future. I remember a quote from, uh, no, I, I completely agree. Jeff Bezos and it's like, you know, how do you succeed in future proofing your business? And he's like, think about what does not change in your business and get really, really good at it. Right. So, you know, yeah. and, and what doesn't Brilliant. change in retail Brilliant. is customer interaction, keeping your customer happy, you know, uh, you know, great experiences in the store. Those are some things that, you know, you're always going to need in the store. You're going to need customers walking out happy, feeling they got a good deal, got treated well. And then, you know, and like you said, you got to be nimble and agile about everything else. And, you yeah. know, you can't get stuck in too deep into any of those uh, pieces especially because i find that as much as innovation is awesome and exciting it's really not a retailer's core strength from a perspective of unless you're a digital native retailer right so which is different sure. i think if you're a digital native retailer and you sell only in um online then i think it's a, it's a slightly different uh thinking as opposed to somebody's got yeah. gary would you agree with that I completely agree with that. I, I think that, you know, moving ahead, I, I think digital natives are going to become uh, more impactful competitors to traditional retailers, right? Simply because they think differently. They think tech first. They're more comfortable leveraging new tech, new innovation, new capability <clears throat> as shopping gets reinvented. Traditional retailers... Um, I, I think have a really tough time of letting go of we've always done it this way. Yep. Some of those infrastructures are a hundred years old. Yes. Right. Yeah. Really hard to move those ships. And and processes and practices and you know uh, and Shaker, I think you heard me speak at midwinter. I use the example of you know what we're talking about here, right? The yep. the traditional you know weekly ad. Yeah. Uh, you know, retailers uh, uh, being afraid to give that up or move away from that, even though the power of personalization is certainly well proven today. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. completely. I totally agree, Gary. And I know, and, and just today we, we had some calls and, uh, you know, discussion was around, uh, I mean, these guys are so busy keeping the lights on and running their business, right? And I think there just isn't enough space and time and people to sit around figuring out innovation from that perspective that can be, you know, uh, industry shifting, right? Yeah. It's very rare that you have a retailer come up with an innovation unless you're a digital native retailer. But, you know, let's talk about data here. So I think, I think you know, a lot of all these innovations are really driven around availability of data and uh, mm -hmm. how... How well is it maintained? Uh, you know, and I think, uh, and that's what I tell retailers. I said, listen, if you want to get ready for using the new technologies, the one thing you've got to have is data discipline. If you're good at maintaining data and keeping it structured, then I think you're more likely to be able to take advantage of technologies that come down the road. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's that's a basic necessity nowadays. And I think we've seen a lot of retailers get uh, more. Um, aware of the importance of doing that. And I think the other piece where it comes in really handy is, is when you're, you have to have some kind of data sharing process where you're exchanging data with other parties that you're working with. So you can more effectively run your 
processes. And I'm sure you're seeing that. I mean, you know, if you're running promotions, you're, you're, you know, your retailers are working with yeah. suppliers and there's need for data exchange and measurement and other transactions, right? Yeah. It's, and it's been a fun evolution to watch over the last decade. You know, I remember, I remember working with a retailer, gotta be 10 years ago now, if not more, uh, so, which is not that long in the world where they literally dumped their POS data after 48 hours. Right. When you think about the magic of the fuel that that is. So, you know, fast forward, they have a loyalty program. They've got some connection to their customers now. They're marrying their POS data and they're just gaining the intelligence they need to make better choices. But um, they're still, they still know their consumer and their shopper through the lens of their experiences at their individual retailer. And they're not taking, to your point, all of the mass amounts of data that is out there, whether it's from a third party who's been managing databases, it's demographic, psychographic, or behavioral data that's out in the world, but it's listening data that you can then tie into what uh, everybody's online behaviors look like. You can start getting a rounder picture of what um, what your shopper actually looks like. And yeah. you know, back in the Epsilon days, we used to have this funny slide that we put up and we'd say, um, you know, imagine a, a, a customer, British, a million dollars, uh, a multimillionaire, uh, British, 70 years old, loves uh, European football, so soccer. You have the picture in your mind. Was it, at the time, Prince Charles or was it Ozzy Osbourne, right? Right, same demographic yeah. profile. But you're yeah. not going to talk to them, their behaviors, their motivations, very, very different. So retailers, I think, are sitting, and they know it, they're sitting on more of the close to the consumer data than anybody else. Um, weaponizing it for the betterment of customer experience first and then letting the rest cascade out is something that's inconsi inconsistent. Yes. Um, so I have to slip right. in this joke, Brian. The only thing yeah. I can tell you is both people are probably paranoid. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you know. I think Ozzy Osbourne was part of Black Sabbath, right? Yeah. I don't know. He, he sang a song called Paranoid. I don't know if you ever heard yes, it. Yes, he did. I know the song. That's a good one. I've never heard I've never heard uh, King Charles sing it though. So I don't know. I know, know but I'm sure he was paranoid for many number of different reasons. reasons. <laughs> Some Some other reasons. reasons. <laughs> different reasons. Um, no, you're you're but, absolutely right. You know, and I think uh it's that uh you know that classic, you know, when you think about, you know, you don't have the full picture of the elephant somebody was holding its uh you know, tail and thinks it's a rope kind of thing, right? You need to get a full picture of some of your customer to really understand how to deal with them in the right, right, uh, uh, right, right. So how do you think this plays into, cause you know, retailers are constantly working with suppliers to yeah. work out their next campaign and what's going to be promoted in the store. And, and I gotta, you gotta think that data is a really core part of making those decisions, right. And making I do. that data available. I think what what's happening and maybe I, this isn't the question, I apologize, but I think, what I witness is too much of the data because of its specificity is being used. This is universal. This is retailers and this is in other, other companies too, is being used um, for the micro, right? For the personalization of delivery of content at an individual level. Uh, and that's great. And you absolutely need that. And that's a, a core part. If it's not part of a core part of everybody's uh, median delivery mechanism, then it needs to be. I think too often what people are not doing, retailers, consumer uh, organizations, regardless of where you are in the ecosystem, laddering it up and saying, what are the insights that we're gleaning? 
And how does that impact our overall delivery, our store operations, our brand perception? Yeah. Because that, taking the old marketing principles, we've got better you know, insights than we've ever had before. Right. So we're working with a retailer now as a creative AOR. And we've taken some of the research that we've done and we've layered in some basic things, some of their behavioral data that they're getting just through their basket analysis, and then layered on some um, basic social listening on top of what their what we know are their, their 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 frequent shoppers. The result has been our campaign was slightly off. Right? We were on our we were on a good path, but it was probably the wrong path. Right. Mm -hmm. We were talking to, we were talking to people and we were talking to them well, but we can get a little bit closer into something that's ultimately going to motivate them to do two things, um, to show us love as a brand and to choose us above all else. And then, you know, to come into our store each week. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I, I think increasingly it takes really sort of that blended left brain, right brain approach, right. To mm -hmm. be able to draw meaningful insights out of all this data that, that retail has. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember years ago, I launched one of the first loyalty programs in the US, uh, supermarket sector, many, many nights sitting in front of that computer screen, right? Looking at, at that time, literally a new world of, of data and information. And, you know, what I found was the ability to combine analytics with, an understanding of how people shop, you know, some basic psychology was really the, the uh, secret sauce to understanding yeah. that and, and drawing um, insights out of that, that you could then turn into action, right. In operations and marketing and so on. And that was yeah. just incredibly powerful. But as I talked and worked with a growing number of retailers, I found that secret sauce in short supply. Mm. It's hard. Yeah. Right. And it's different. It is yeah. different, but Absolutely. all of it to me always came down to, and again, even with our clients now, it's not a universal truth that we're getting there with all of them to your point, but it's why are our consumers and shoppers making the choices that they're making, trying yeah. to get to that why, and then what's going to motivate them to make the choices that we want them to make or said differently, what are their motivations to make the choices that they're going to make? And are we servicing that? Which right. is really the place where retailers need to be. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it's hard. I, it's hard when the sorry, Jacob. It's no, hard no. when the infrastructure is not in place. Because usually what I what I do find is every organization, hundred percent, has a champion. There's always somebody inside who's got a passion for it, but they've been, you know, like like the puppy, they've been wrapped in the nose a couple too many times with the newspaper for going out of their swim lane. So they don't tend to fight as much. Yeah. Right, right. And I guess, you know, the other thing with obviously with all these amazing technologies that are out there, you know, you go to a show like NRF or, you know, grocery shop or any of these events and there's a zillion things. And if you're a retailer, you walk in there, you're like a deer in headlights, right? Like there's like too many things to go after. And I guess, one of the things that winds up happening is, you know, like, uh, you know, paralysis of analysis, right? It's like mm. too many things for me to try to figure out what the heck is going on here. Yep. And very often, you know, what that results in is indecision, right? It's like, you know, I don't know if there's going to be something coming by. You're kind of afraid of, you have this FOMO, 
that something else might come by tomorrow that's better than what's out here. Right. If I commit to this, oh my God, am I going to be stuck? And I think um, it takes, obviously it takes leadership, it takes executive will, it, 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 it requires clarity to figure out, hey, what's your core competency and principles to figure out exactly what you need now. But mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of people listening out there who come out of these events and they're like, they're still dazed by, by everything. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So, so what is your advice to, <clears throat> to these people in terms of how do they, you know, when you look at all these tools, how do you try to figure out, how do you make a decision, number one, right? Because yeah. no decision is not, can be like Gary in this book, Diabonic Retail, if you don't do something about this right now, you can be just, you know, you can be stuck in the past with dinosaurs, yeah. right? Yeah, indecision is a decision. Right. Right, it's a choice. It is a choice. Uh, what's never changed, I think we get, uh, we even had this here, is like when we first kicked off PR1, we were struggling to figure out why clients weren't picking it up. It's because we were selling technology. Technology is an intimidating thing. Everybody's got business problems. Does it solve a business problem? So. If, if if I'm a retailer, I'm going in with saying, hey, there's three problems that I have. I'm not going to find anything that's going to solve it, right? And if it's, you think about like a car. If I want to drive fast, I don't need to know how the engine works. I need to know if it goes fast, right? If I feel like it's going to get me there quicker, that's good enough, right? I don't need to be the expert on technology. I'd love that. I've been working in digital. Uh, I think the first website I launched was in the 90s. I can't write a line of code. You know, I've been working with creatives my entire career. I can't move a pixel. I don't intend. I don't intend to ever have that skill set because I have people who have forgotten more about that than ever I'm ever going to know. But I know business right. problems, right? So if I'm walking into into this evaluation and I'm saying I have a business problem, will this get me there faster? That's the best way to to sort of bucket everything I'm looking at. Yes, no, and then you can go from there. Um, right. I do the analysis paralysis. Uh, phenomenon uh, has we were out of it for a while uh, and the last couple of years we've jumped right back into it almost universally mm -hmm. uh, you know the people who are separating themselves out are the ones who recognize that this may be wrong but we're going to do it anyway because the reasons we're looking at it are right mm -hmm. um, but I definitely noticed there is this fear of making a mistake and I don't know if it's because runways have gotten shorter or there's a few, I mean, look what's going on in the world right now. Um, every day I hit refresh on my my, um, my feeds and there's more layoffs coming across the tech industry and uh, retail and, and now agency right. businesses are starting. So everybody may be afraid of, you just got to weather the storm and stay under the radar. But this notion of, of um, taking risks has started to, to, to damper a little bit. So, um, you know, what do, what, what do we do? What do we do here? Uh, right, wrong, or indifferent? Uh, we make sure the reasons we're making the bets are the right reasons. Right. Uh, if we make the wrong choice, we recognize and we ship fast. <laughs> and we do it. We make mistakes. We have to. You, know, you can't be an innovative company without making some bold choices. Right. Um, I definitely see on our retailer side, though, uh, a mixed bag. Some are really excited about innovation. Yeah. And some are, you know, we, we've had some, even on the, so the our prospect lists, uh, we've had individual conversations that have turned into longstanding relationships. And then we've had some sales cycles that have gone on for 14 months. 
Yeah. Goalpost keeps moving. We keep coming up with a new reason. What about this? What about that? Um, it's just it's fear of making. And I feel in a lot of cases it's it's lack of clarity or objective and understanding mm. what's the problem you're trying to solve. And yeah, and I think if you if you if you're a leader, you recognize that some problems need to be solved today, and I need something to fix it today because if I don't, you know, I'm going to leak. Right. I'm going to and I have to yeah. fix this hole today. Yeah. And then and then the second thing is, OK, what's the what's the road I'm on where if I continue down this road, where am I headed? I think there's a strategic direction thing. And what's the you know, how do I fix the holes in the buckets and then figure out where I'm going to carry it? Right. And if you don't fix yeah. the holes in the buckets, you're not going to have a bucket to carry. So that's exactly you know, right. So I think, I think the question is, you know, what, what's the tactical solution that I'm trying to solve and what's the strategic direction I want to take the company? And that's going to dictate a lot of. Yeah. Okay, what tools do I need, and what's the breadth of the tool set I need? Right, you know, is a point solution work for this, or do I need to think? Is it a rethink? I feel, you know, and you know, you're running a tech company. You understand, you know, when you think about roadmap, you know, you think about okay, it's great we have this feature, but let's step back and look at hey, where is right. the product going? Right. Yeah. yeah what's next? Hey, what's exactly. Next? Exactly. Always. What's next? I I think there's also though a. a a mechanism here of sort of a la lack of pressure, right? Because think back before the world shut down, we were seeing, you know, more and more retailers interested in innovation. Then the pandemic happened and supermarket grocery retailers had to innovate like they've never had to in the past, you know, within days, <clears throat> hours, days, come yeah. up with solutions to stay in business, to solve one problem after another. And, uh, you know, we saw interest in new tech, new innovation just spike over those, you know, 12, 24 yeah. months. And now that we've come out of that, my sense is we've seen a lot of retailers go back to their business as usual. Yeah, the future is going to happen. Yes, technology is yeah. moving. Yes, innovation is important. But I'm not seeing any driving need to, we, right. you know, we got to do this now. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, you think that's fatigue? I think it's a little fatigue, or you think it's just I, a I, before it was survival and now you've survived? I, I think it was. I, I guess my sense is it's not fatigue as much as you know we 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 had to hurry up and do everything we had to do during the pandemic. We came off that supermarket retailers had great sales, right? Yeah. Coming off that. Great margins. Nearly every retailer came out of that cash rich. And now in the last couple of years, you know, they've had inflation, which has helped sales in the top line. You know, um, only just very recently am I hearing retailers, you know, growing aware, maybe slightly concerned about, well, gee, things are flattening out, you know, a little bit of margin pressure. Um so I, I think it's more complacency. Yeah. yeah, complacency. I could yeah. see that. You know, I, I, I think complacency has always been the enemy of innovation, right? So yeah. that's kind of like the, you know, eternal battle, complacency versus yeah. innovation. But, but listen, you know, I, I, th I think we're running this podcast, at least, and Gary has been keenly aware, but I have found a new appreciation for retail and what it takes to get a store up and running and, do everything that you have to do from the front end customer experience oh, to yeah. the customers to keeping the store open to supply chain to 
compliance yeah. to you know pricing it's, it's it's a complicated business right and you got to be a very brave person to enter that world so it do well, have so a lot to that of to that end i always wonder if the world we live in even though it's designed to make the world better is more noise and there's a recognition is we are more because it to your point it is very hard to run even one store let alone 300 500 thousands yeah. Gary, I, I see I see the birth of another episode of another series of podcasts called The Philosophy of Retail. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could get Brian on for the first episode. Philosophy without substance, I'm in. There you that go. sounds like my uh, that sounds or, like or my at least another book shaker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> book. And Gary, by talking about book, we, we gotta do a whole episode on your book. I'm just uh, in the middle of it. So so once we're done, I want to interview the author if the author will accept to be on an episode. All right. I, I think we can make that happen. I'm sure we can. I hope we can. That'd be great. Listen, Brian, this has been a great conversation. And, you know, I expected it to be nothing less, uh, having Hi. spoken to you many times. And uh, I know we've struck up a really, really nice relationship here. You know, obviously, we're going to continue talking here. But thank you so much for being a guest on the Retail Perch. And by the way, you do. there is a perk. Uh, and if you do send us your address, you'll get this coffee mug in the mail. Outstanding. And Outstanding. Uh, so make sure, uh, you know, get our your address out to you and we'll have this in the mail to you. So. Well, I appreciate you guys inviting me and uh, had a lot of fun. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, look forward to doing it again. Yeah. Brian, Gary, great closing thoughts? No, it was a great discussion. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. And thanks, folks. Bye. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off. 